and 19. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Young disciples who were left in the room, that's first grade and up. If you need a sermon guide, they're right over here on the table. Uh, You can grab one. Adults, you're welcome to steal one as well. So last week, I talked about a beautiful church. This week, I want to talk about a safe church. If a beautiful church pursues intentional gospel relationships, which comes directly from the first part of our declaration as a church, then a safe church displays Christ's glory among the nations, which comes from the rest of our declaration. So, with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Luke chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So blame this on Wendell Berry, but I have come to believe that the story of a place is really important. So does anyone here know the history of Beachmont, Iroquois, the neighborhood in which we are planted? Anybody? Anybody know some of the parts of it? Studied it? Heard about it? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. It was developed in the 1890s around Iroquois Park, the largest park that was masterminded by Frederick Law Olmsted. And I don't know if you know this, but it was originally referred to as Louisville's Yellowstone. Yeah, I know. The city then built a direct artery in which to escape to the park, Southern Parkway. Did you know that the word parkway, when applied to roads, is used because that road ends in a park? There you go. Originally, Southern Parkway was referred to as Grand Boulevard. And you can see why, beginning here with the beauty of those trees that are lined along the way. And if you drive down Southern Parkway today, you still see the beauty. Beachmont was named for the beech trees that populated the area, which are considered to be stately trees with wide-spreading canopies that provide great shade. Thus, Beachmont developed as a pleasant summer shelter from the hot, overcrowded downtown Louisville. Beachmont also escaped flooding during the Great Flood of 1937, wherein 70% of Louisville was submerged underwater. Thus, Beachmont served as a temporary disaster shelter for many of the 175,000 people who were forced to flee their homes. Later, Beachmont's predominant architecture became the craftsman home. That's a style 
that was in response to the Industrial Revolution that was intended to be naturally welcoming with overhanging eaves and wide-columned porches on the outside. And then on the inside, a simplicity of design that was meant to be cozy, homey, unpretentious, and warm. It's no surprise then that beginning in 1975, near the end of the Vietnam War, Beachmont served as the first part of the city to receive and resettle refugees, which explains why Beachmont is marked by so much international diversity even to this day. So, you see a theme there? Any line that you can draw throughout the story of this neighborhood? And it seems like from the beginning and throughout the story, Beachmont, Iroquois has been a place of shelter. And, it, and that is why so many different peoples, including you and me, have come to find refuge under its shade. You see, we were created for this very thing. When God made the first man and woman, he didn't set them adrift in a wild world, but he specifically placed them where? In a garden in Eden, which would protect them from the heat of the day and where God would meet with them and walk with them. And at the center of that garden was the grandfather of all beech trees, the tree of life, which didn't just provide shade, but offered fruit from which the man and woman could eat and live forever. Notice that the capstone of the description of God's perfect creation in the book of Genesis says that the man and the woman were in the garden and they were naked and without shame. Exposed in all of their vulnerability, but no shame overcasting them because they were free from sin and they experienced the fullness of life with God. Unfortunately, it was not the fruit of this tree that they were satisfied to eat and live forever but the forbidden kind of fruit which came from another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was only after they sinned against God that they chose to be set adrift, cut off from the tree of life and the garden, becoming the most vulnerable creatures on the planet when exposed naked to the natural elements. Yes, we are by far the most intelligent. We are the crowning piece of God's creation. But you expose us naked as a newborn to the elements, and we, beyond any creature on the planet, will quickly die. And from that point on, they and every person since has been longing for, looking for that shelter to be restored. As the theologian Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. We are anxiously nomadic. We move from space to space in search of refuge. And not just city to city, but space to face in the course of a normal day. You're constantly looking, where can I go? Such that I will be accepted, so that my vulnerability won't be exposed and taken advantage of. In the popular language of our culture, we are looking for a safe place. A place not where our vulnerability can be taken away, because in this broken world it can never be fully taken away, but where it can be protected instead of taken advantage of. How does this now connect to the pastor's discussion of five-year vision? Well, we were discussing together this question. What are our people zealous for? 
What are the people of Antioch Church zealous for? Now, of course, we want you to be zealous about obeying everything that Jesus commands in his word. And we also want to shepherd you in strategic directions. But if we are going to allow ourselves the gift of simply being the church that God made us to be, instead of trying to be like every other church on the planet and something that we're not intended to be, then good shepherds who know their flock will take into consideration the heartbeat of their flock. So what are our people zealous for? Our answer came in a single word. Shelter. Young disciples, you'll need to write this word down on your guides. Think about this. Don't have to raise your hands. Just think about it. How many of you found your way to Antioch because, in some fashion, you were looking for shelter? How many, think about this, of our distributed members, that is, people that we have sent out to the nations to proclaim Jesus in hot, overcrowded places in the wild world, how many of our distributed members describe Antioch as a shelter that gives them the respite they need to continue serving adrift in that wild world? And think about this. How many of you over the past three years in our historical and cultural moment have felt the need for your church to be a safe place, a shelter? Anybody? All the angst coming from things like a global pandemic and a presidential election and racial tensions and the tremors of a society divided against itself and churches serving as havens for spiritual and sexual abusers. Then all the mental health fallout that has come from that. Shelter anyone besides me? Can I, can I get some shelter? Do I want some anybody? Okay. And guess what's coming our way over the next five years? If we're not stressed out enough this morning, everything's going to slow down, right? We're just going to get down to a nice, comfortable pace, right? No, no. Just think about this, this church alone. All these babies in here, they're going to be kids. And then all these kids that are in here, they're going to be youth. And all these youth that are in here, are going to be released into the wild world. Y'all, it's going to be busy around here. But at least everything is going to calm down, right? Well, on the short list, we are looking at what is likely a recession, another presidential election, and widening polarization in the culture and in the church. We're going to be crazy. This isn't going away. Anyone else's heart feeling a little restless, ready for some shade from the heat of the day. So our need for a safe church is pretty obvious. The question is, and what I want us to wrestle with together today and then this week in our family groups, is what exactly is a safe church? What is it? Well, let us draw from God's word to find that first, a safe church displays Christ's glory. Today, I want to jump back a few chapters in the Gospel of Luke 
to a couple of verses that we didn't really get to cover last year. Jesus, here's the context, has just healed a woman with a disabling spirit that for 18 years had bent her face down. The craziest thing, however, is that in response to this miracle, the ruler of the synagogue is furious with Jesus. Why? Anyone remember? Why is he mad at Jesus? Because Jesus inconsiderately healed this woman on the Sabbath when everyone is supposed to be resting and being restored into the rest of their week. How is it then that the canopy of Jesus' kingdom will ever provide widespreading shade if the spiritual leaders won't even accept him? These are the people with the power in society to open or close the door of Jesus being able to come forward to be accepted or rejected. And so Luke seems to be anticipating this question in the mind of his readers and thus follows the story with a parable that provides the answer. We look at it, verse 18. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? Now, there's a reason why we've used the phrase upside down in regard to the Gospel of Luke. Because when it comes to the kingdom, and when I refer to the kingdom, I'm not equating it with the local church. I'm saying the kingdom as this widespreading reality of life with God under the rule of God. When it comes to the kingdom, we have a lot of assumptions. And those assumptions are based on norms that developed after we left the garden. Let me give you a couple of examples. We hear the word kingdom, and we think earthly kingdom. We think things like a king who rules a nation and goes to war to protect that nation. We hear the word power, and we think earthly power. That is something with great strength and speed and size. Jesus is like, y'all, that's not even close, okay? Not even close. So what can I compare the kingdom to? So with God's help, you'll understand it. Ah, Jesus says, I've got it. Instead of thinking that it is like an atomic bomb, think, verse 19, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. Now, a mustard seed may not be the tiniest thing that you have ever seen. But if you compare it with other seeds that eventually become trees, think like an acorn, then a mustard seed seems pretty small, quite unimpressive. In a fight between a mustard seed and a slab of city concrete, who will win? The concrete. Every time. No contest. But... Put a mustard seed in the ground and wait and make no mistake. Eventually, day by day, month by month, year by year, that tree will grow and absolutely shatter that city concrete to pieces. This is the upside down nature of God's kingdom power on display. 
It has little to do with strength and speed and size. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6 So let me preach to you the most important display of this kingdom power. Before the first man and woman departed from the garden, God promised that something would come from the woman that would absolutely shatter the power of evil. Anyone remember what it was? Genesis chapter 3. The seed, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That word offspring in the Hebrew literally is the word seed. Then, as we learned in our series in Genesis, that seed eventually passes from generation to generation and grows into a young tree, as it's often described in the Old Testament, that tree being the kingdom of Israel. But they, too, chose to be set adrift from God. Anybody remember what happened to the young tree, the kingdom of Israel? How did it end up? Captivity, exile, it was conquered by foreign powers to the shame of God's people and his power over them. And they were taken to the nations after so much destruction happening among their people. And listen to how the tree of Israel is described by the prophet Isaiah. And though a tenth remain in it, that is, it has been so desolated that there's only a tenth remaining among those people who have not been either killed or exiled. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Behold the kingdom power of God. After hundreds of years, a dead, smoking, Stump. Yet within that charred stump, what remained? The holy seed. In fact, we read about that seed just a few chapters later in the prophet Isaiah. He writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 10, In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. We're not just talking about one kingdom. We're talking about all kingdoms. And his resting place shall be glorious. From the seed comes a shoot that will shatter all evil and rule over all kingdoms. Who is he talking about? Anybody? Speak his name? Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. Jesus comes wielding power in the way that actually takes the most power. What takes more power? Taking a hammer, putting a hole in somebody's head. Or taking a hammer and choosing not to put a hole in somebody who deserves to receive it. Which one takes more power? Yeah, absolutely. And so here's what Jesus comes doing with God's kingdom power. Instead of using it to shatter people, he uses it to heal people. 
He is the true tree of life, which provides the shade and the fruit by which men and women can live forever. And in the upside-down kingdom way, how does that happen? Through vulnerability. What? What? Think about this. Don't just think about it. Feel this. Own this. It's really happened in our world. Though God himself, Jesus becomes one of the most vulnerable creatures on the planet when exposed naked to the natural elements. God became that. What? He literally becomes nomadic in that as a boy, he has to flee as a refugee. And then later as a man, he is described as having nowhere to lay his head. Despite never sinning against anyone, Jesus becomes rejected, hated, arrested, condemned, beaten, and nailed to a cross naked. Like we can't even display that in our art because it's so shameful. So we put a loincloth over his greatest vulnerability, yet exposed to the world. There he is set adrift, cut off from the protective shade of the Father. Behold the kingdom power of God. Christ on the cross naked, dying for the sins of the world. And like Isaiah says, this is glorious. Not because Jesus' resting place ends in a tomb, but because through the greatest of vulnerabilities, he shatters all the power of evil, even death itself. Hebrews 12, chapter 2 says that he scorned the shame of the cross. What does that mean? The cross is saying over Christ, you are evil, you are the worst, you are cut off. But Jesus rises from the grave and says, that is not true of me. I am the chosen son, the true king. He scorns the shame. I will not let that rule over me. Why does he do that? So that he can give it to us. That's what a safe church displays. It displays Christ's glory. And not when you finally get power over your vices and you strengthen yourself into a good person do you become part of his church. No, no, it is when You own your complete vulnerability to sin and evil and death. And you see Jesus as your only shelter. That's when you become part of his church. Only then does your restless heart find its rest in God. But that's only the beginning, church. When in this family we continue to expose our vulnerability to one another, instead of choosing to drift away from God again, to mess up and to draw into isolation and cut off from people, or to show up to family group and pretend like everything's good and just talk about your uncle's brother's cousins who's got something he needs lanced off his toe, instead of talking about the fact that you're looking at porn again, or you hate God, or you hate your life, or you're miserable, you're caught in depression. When we choose not to go there, but we expose our vulnerabilities in the name of Christ to one another. 
Then day by day, month by month, year by year, by the power of God, we grow. We scorn our shame. We say, yes, I looked again. Yes, I messed up again. But what is true of me is not that I am that shameful person cut off from God, but that Christ's righteousness rests over me and God still says, I am beloved. He is delighted in me. The sinner, the struggling one, the ones who's really embarrassed about what I did or didn't do this week. When we come into spaces like this, and in family group, and we can just be real about that. And people can look you in the eyes and not even say anything. Not even quote scripture to you necessarily, but just look you in the eyes and stay put when you share your most embarrassing sin. And they say, I love you anyways, and I'm here on behalf of Christ committed to you. That's when people grow. That's a safe church. It doesn't mean that we justify our sins. And say, hey, no, 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 it's okay. It doesn't matter. Just do whatever you want. Jesus loves you anyway. No, no, no. We call one another to holiness, but as we stand in place and look each other in the eyes and stay instead of running away or to turn our face ashamed of you because you sinned again like I didn't, then that's when we grow. That's when we grow. In my own personal journey lately, I've been studying a lot about Shame, how it's so often at the root of what keeps me from becoming all that God created me to be, from joyfully obeying the commands of Christ, from having the confidence to take the risks and be creative. And what I'm learning over and over is that the way to overcome shame, the shame that Jesus has already bore on the cross and declared that there is no longer any condemnation for, is through vulnerability. And that's not just spiritual, but it's literally what rewires our brains and heals our bodies and rewrites our stories. We talked about this last week, but Jesus physically in heaven, not here. So if you want to experience Jesus scorning your shame, And saying, I forgive you, I love you, I'm not going anywhere, I'm sitting right here, eye to eye. We're going to do this together. You can't experience that. He's there. That stinks, doesn't it? Anybody want to acknowledge that with me? I'd really like to experience Jesus looking me in the face. That's why you're obsessed with the chosen, by the way. And so you can experience him doing what he does there. You know? But you can't. Until he comes back. So what do you got in the meantime? You just shuffle around, sad about life? No. He has implanted himself in one another. So that you can sit with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can experience Jesus looking at you eye to eye. Saying, I'm not ashamed of you. I love you despite your sin. Through another person. Our family group recently branched. We went from like. 30 people to like six people, it felt like, you know? And so what we did as a part of kind of getting through that, that uh, transition was we decided that we'd all share our stories with one another. We gave each other like 45 minutes, two people a night, and we said, tell us your story, not just your testimony, but like from, from birth all the way up to where you are today. Just tell us, tell us, and share, you don't have to share anything that you don't feel comfortable sharing, but we would encourage you to share as much as you're willing to. And we did that over the course of the last couple months. It's been beautiful. 
It's been beautiful just to hear people's stories, because at the end we asked two questions. What was it like for you to share your story to a group of people who love you and who aren't going anywhere? And what was it like for you all who listened to listen to this person's story, to hold that space and to not flee, to not be ashamed of them? It's powerful. It was a gift that we give to one another on behalf of Christ and a foretaste of what we will get to do for all of eternity. It really is. And this is actually the very thing that we seek to cultivate in our family groups. This is a brand new graphic designed by yours truly. So be blown away by how nice it is, okay? Here we go. But in our family groups, we say that we want to cultivate transparency, vulnerability, and trust in a cycle. That's how we build intentional gospel relationships that can transform us through the gospel. And so transparency, what is it? That is openness that leads to vulnerability, okay? That's you coming into family group and talking about what's really going on in your life, not just the fact that you got a raise this week, isn't that great, or something over here that's really on the surface, but it's not deep down. You're being transparent with one another. But that leads to vulnerability, doesn't it? Anybody felt that moment where you've shared something in group and you're like, I don't know if I, how's this going to go? How are people going to respond to me? Are they going to kick me out? Are they going to quote scripture to me and judge me? Or what's going to go on here? Vulnerability is then receptivity to others. It's being exposed. Young disciples, for your sermon guides, that ask you the question of what is vulnerability. I'll just use this word exposed, right? We expose and we're receptive to how people care for us in that moment, which then leads to trust. Trust is at the heart of true relationship. And then the cycle continues week after week and relationships grow and we're changed. And when we foster this, God's kingdom power is coming in our midst. It may not look like it. It may not feel like it, but it is. We scorn our shame through the power of Christ when we do this. We experience the garden again where we are naked and without shame. Let me explain that because we got kids in the room. We're not getting naked in family groups. What I mean is we're exposing our sin, our reality, our struggles, our doubts to one another without shame because we are loved and kept and we can help one another tell truer stories. Yes, right now you sinned and you need to repent and walk with Jesus and be restored, but that is not definitive of you. You are a beloved son or daughter with whom God is well pleased. That's what we hope happens in the life of our family groups, in the life of our church. And when that is happening, when the kingdom is coming in our midst, then we are being a safe church that displays Christ's glory. Point number one. There you go. I promise the next one won't be so long. In fact, it really serves as today's conclusion. If the first point is true, then it is that which allows the rest of our declaration to be fulfilled which goes like this. A safe church displays Christ's glory among the nations. So pay attention here to the conclusion of Jesus' words in verse 19. The kingdom of God, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So this parable is actually included in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark as well. So why then did I choose Luke's version? Well, because the way that Luke uses it is different from the other Gospel writers. 
Whereas they focus on the contrast between the size of the seed and the size of the tree. Starts small, grows big. Luke focuses on the end result. That the birds come and take shelter in its branches. So as a bird watcher, what choice did I have? I had to choose this version. Come on. Now there's been some debate over who or what exactly the birds represent in this parable. Are they evil spirits, which are sometimes personified as birds in the Old Testament? Are they false believers who mix into the kingdom but will ultimately be kicked out? I think the best explanation comes from the reality that the Old Testament commonly uses the image of birds in a tree as the nations finding a place of shelter and shade. Young disciples, you need that for your guide. What exactly does the birds and the nests in the tree represent? It represents the nations finding shelter. What Jesus is alluding to in his parable is that the little vulnerable seed of his kingdom even though it will be despised and rejected by those in power, it will slowly, day by day, month by month, year by year, grow into a shelter for believers from all ages and all nations. Over the past three years, as I've become more aware of birds around me, I came to notice Antioch's neighborhood Cooper's Hawk. When I would arrive at the office, he would often be perched on the top of the light pole that's kind of right out here in that little curve, nearest to where I often park. And similar to the house sparrows that nest on our porch out there, seeing our neighborhood Cooper's hawk always made me pause no matter how busy I was and appreciate the beauty of God's creation and how he has given us right smack in the middle of the city, 11 acres to steward as a refuge for both man and beast, I guess. Well, sadly, last week I arrived and parked my car where I usually do, and I noticed something laying beside it. It was our Cooper's Hawk. Isn't that beautiful? Now, I approached it very cautiously, as you should if you see a hawk lying on the ground. And I was delighted to see one up close. I don't know how many times in my life I've thought, oh, man, if I, I'll have to wait until the new creation to where I get to like hold one and like look and admire its feathers up close and not with binoculars. So I was delighted to see it. But conversely, at the same time, it's really sad. And quickly found that it had been shot dead. Probably from the pole where it usually perched. Because it fell right beside my car. You know, I suppose in a post-garden world, even a church is not always a safe place. And that's perhaps an analogy of the challenge that we face over the next five years and the next 30 and beyond. Will we be a safe church, not just for the sake of ourselves, but for those who are still looking for shelter? Will people start to enter in to this community 
but then get shot down because we expect lost people to immediately act like saved people. Or shoot them down by justifying their sins and failing to preach the gospel to them. The challenge on the other side. Will we seek to what we describe here at Antioch as the empty chair? That is, that one chair at your family group that you intentionally keep open and seek to fill it prayerfully and actively with someone who needs shelter, who needs community, who needs Jesus, an experience of Jesus' people. Will we seek to fill the empty chair in our family groups so that others can experience family and the gospel's power over our shame? Or will there be no empty chairs because of our unwillingness to make room in our groups? Tough question. Are we willing to sacrifice to be a safe church? Will we continue to pursue ministries that may not be so natural to us, like soccer and food pantry, make you a little bit uncomfortable, lead you to engage relationally with people rather than just doing an activity that is very impersonal. Will we continue to do that with our eyes specifically on the people that God is drawing near because they want shelter, who's doing a work in their hearts before we even meet them, and specifically, hey, maybe has brought them all the way from the other side of the planet to this neighborhood in order for us to develop an intentional gospel relationship with them and to hold out to them, whether they receive it or not, the shelter of Jesus Christ. Will we pursue intentional gospel relationships with neighbors from other countries? Or will we let the inconvenience of cultural and language barriers keep us focused only on the majority? Maybe, in fact, it was for these very reasons that Antioch Church was strategically planted in Beachmont, Iroquois. That we would provide shade to That we would enter that same story of being a place of escape from the flood of sin. That we would be a welcoming home. And not just here, but all the places you scatter throughout the week. That we would be a place to receive and resettle people who are wandering. In order for them to eventually be released and sent back out into the wild world. In the name of Jesus. Antioch may not look exactly like what was originally expected for it. But the purpose is still the same. To display Christ's glory among the nations. To be a shelter by the power of the gospel where the shame of sin can be healed among the nations. To be a foretaste of God making all things new just as we read at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river. Maybe bring back that image of old Grand Boulevard and Southern Parkway and its heyday with all those beautiful trees that no one has like knocked down with their cars yet or whatever, lining that street, except it's a river. And notice that this time along both sides, accessible to anyone, is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, never failing to provide 
eternal life. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of what? The nations. That's why we're here. Don't forget that you are among those nations yourself. And in light of that grace, you get to extend that to those of other nations. And church, here is the proof, sitting on the floor right in front of me. Here's the proof of God's love for us, for the scorning of our shame, and for the reality that we can be a safe church. In front of us on the floor is a symbol of the tree in which we nest, and a fruit in which we eat until that great day of Revelation chapter 22. The night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and after blessing it, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. As often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death. Until he returns. Today we are announcing church. That Jesus Christ is the only place. Where we can find. True shelter. And rest. For our restless hearts. The invitation today. If you're a baptized believer. Is to come forward. To this symbol of God's shelter. And his tree of life. In the person of Jesus Christ. To come not overcast with shame dragging like it's a funeral procession, but coming confident that the Father delights for you to be at his table and for you to feast and be refreshed for another week. Come, break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice, remembering what Christ has done for you and what he promises to do for you in his return. And if you're here today and you're not a baptized believer, our invitation to you is instead of taking this is to take Christ. He has made himself available to you. What's the point of coming and walking through a religious act if there's nothing that's changed deep down in your heart? We would invite you to acknowledge your vulnerability to Christ himself today who already sees you through and through and to say to him, I am ashamed because of my sin against you and I want to be forgiven. Will you you accept me? And let him scorn your shame by what he has carried on the cross for you already. If you want to talk with someone about that or have someone pray with you through that, there'll be people in the back to do that. If anyone else has any need at all, come, let us pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And we bow our heads as a way to focus our hearts and minds that are always busy and restless, but we do not bow our heads in shame because, Lord Jesus, you have carried our shame. Lord, for those who have trusted in you, who have taken shelter in your tree of life, may they come today and be refreshed. May they come experience the warm welcome, the nest that is this bread and this cup that we take every week. 
to remind us of what you've done for us and to proclaim to the world that you're coming again. And we really, really, as crazy as it sounds, we really do believe it. We hold on to it for our hope. And I pray today for those who have sensed in their heart that shame does define them because they have sinned against you, a holy God, that they would also see that you are willing to receive them because you paid the price for their shame, their worst, most embarrassing sin. You took naked on the cross and rose with power over it so that they could be forgiven, so that they could be raised up, so that they could be a part of this family that is a safe place. Thank you, Lord. Have your way in our midst. In this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.